Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Tuesday, January the 23rd, 2024. Uh, earlier today, I did an interesting show with the Philadelphia-based journalist, uh, Ben Herald. Uh, he has a new book out today called Disillusioned. It's a book about the crisis of the American suburbs, uh, the unraveling of suburbia. And he suggests that white America is finally facing its ghosts. It was an interesting conversation. Uh, his argument is that White America has essentially passed on its debts to black America, and that explains for the unraveling of America's suburbs. I asked when uh, Harold was on the show, I asked him why everything has, it seems in America, has to be about race. And, and Harold suggested that that's simply a reality. It's uh, the age old issue is America all about race, or isn't it? Is it about the racists and racism? Or is it about perhaps class or economics or something else? It's a perfect introduction to uh, not disillusioned, but my guest today, Keith Boykin, an old friend. This is the third time he's been on the show. He has a new book out, appropriately enough, called Why Does Everything Have to Be About Race? With a question mark. The book is out today, and Keith is joining us from his home in Los Angeles. So, Keith, I'm not sure if you've seen the Herald book. It just got a nice review in the New York Times. Is everything about in America about race? Sometimes it seems as if it is. Well, the premise of the book is that people continually ask that question um, to black people when we talk about race, when we talk about racial discrimination, um, and they accuse us of, of overstating the case that we're making things about race. And my response is that we're not making it that way. It's just that that's the way it was constructed, but it was constructed and built in a way so that it was uh, obvious to us, but it remains oblivious to those who are not affected by it. You know, um, I, there's a chapter in the book about white privilege and uh, I quote Peggy McIntosh, who refers to uh, white privilege as sort of an invisible knapsack that you carry around with you. You don't even realize you have it because it's, it's designed not to be noticed. But everyone else who is not white observes it because they're treated differently because of that. So if I go to a grocery store uh, and the security guard follows me, or if I raise my hand to the taxi and the taxi driver won't pick me up, but picks up a white person, or if I'm stopped by the police and I'm stopped and frisked and searched, uh, I'm, I'm treated differently on a regular basis because of my race to a point where it's impossible for me to ignore that. So for a lot of us, uh, it, it seems obvious that everything is about race. But for a lot of other people who don't necessarily receive the, the, the bright end of that stick, they don't necessarily feel it. But yes, it is all about race. Um, and that's the way it was designed from the beginning. Is it also about class and caste? I'm not sure if you've seen the new film, uh, Origin. Uh, it's an interesting film, just came out uh, based on Isabel Wilkinson's uh, big hit book from, I think, 2020, Caste, which suggests 
that inequality around the world, whether it's the United States or Nazi Germany or India, isn't so much based on race as on caste. So she pushes back on the idea of everything being about race. Uh, are you familiar with Wilkerson, her arguments or the movie? I am familiar with the book. I read the book. I enjoyed the book, Cast. Um, uh, she knows about my book. I sent her a message a few days ago and she responded. Um, I I don't get the impression. I haven't seen the film though, so I'm, I'm not sure what the film, the point of the film is, but I don't get the impression that she's suggesting that it's not all about race. I'm, I'm getting the impression that she's comparing the way we've constructed our racial system in America to the caste system in India uh, and to other systems like the, the Nazi German system of, of oppression in Nazi Germany or South Africa. Uh, so I think she's making those parallels, but we've constructed in a way here that it's about race, but it's about a different thing in, in those other in those societies. But um, it is important to understand though, that race is foundational to who we are as a country. Uh, just a few days ago, Nikki Haley made a statement. She said, America has never been a racist country. I think that's blatantly false. And she cited as evidence Thomas Jefferson's Declaration of Independence. The problem with that is that Jefferson himself was an enslaver who raped his 14-year-old black slave, um, Sally Hemings. And we also know that, that George Washington was an enslaver. We know that the Constitution designated Black people like me as three-fifths of a human being. We know that the Supreme Court in the Dred Scott decision in 1857 said that Black people were not citizens of the country. Uh, we know that we fought a civil war over the issue of slavery in this country, something that Nikki Haley didn't really appreciate a few days ago. And we fought a civil war over the issue of slavery in this country, and it, we led, it led to the assassination of President Lincoln um, because of that, that war. And we know that the, the whole society, the, the, after the Civil War, the Reconstruction period, the, the period of lynching and extrajudicial killings, uh, the, the period of segregation and Jim Crow, is all based on race. And that hasn't disappeared. So it's sad to, to, to sort of acknowledge that reality. But one of the things that I have a little test in the book, it's not a math test, so you know it's nothing difficult. But I have a test in the book, or I ask people to do uh, to take a, a simple to do well, a, that's me see see i'm sure i've come out terribly keith well it's it's, it, it's not it's not a, it's not a, it's not a, a knowledge test it's it's a it's an action test and it, okay. it only you do is use your phone or your computer and i ask people to think of any any topic in the universe they're interested in uh anything that affects americans that is and then do a google search about the history of racism in that subject whether it's broadcasting journalism, literature, computer science, films, um, theater, politics, um, whatever it is you're interested in, any topic you're interested in, do a search for the history of racism in that. And you'll be baffled just how much racial history there is in everything. I mean, it's connected to just about everything that's happened in our society. Although some people might say, well, it's also class and gender. We'll, we'll come to that. The subtitle of your book is 25 Arguments That Won't Go Away. If there's one argument that won't go away, it's the one that Nikki Haley, unfortunately, resurrected about whether the Civil War was about race or something else and states' rights. Of course, she 
fell into that age-old trap and had to apologize for it. It's almost as if uh, you paid her, Keith, to prepare <laughs> the world for your book since uh, she, she's huh. exhibit A on, on in your argument. I just... So when it comes to race, is this imagined or real? I just came back. I, I just was in Mississippi with my wife and in-laws are all African-American. And um, one of the things that they often talk to me about is the fact that there's so much interracial mixing in truth in a place like Mississippi that no one's ever really purely white or black. Many African-Americans, some are darker than others, some whites are darker than others. So when it comes to your title, why does everything have to be about race? It's not about actual race. It's about perceptions, isn't it? Oh, of course. Well, race is a social construct. We know that it didn't exist for most of the, the history of human beings. It's something that comes into our existence in the past five or 600 years. And since that time, we have created this perception of what it means, particularly in the United States, but not exclusively in the United States, of what that means. Uh, and we've we've expanded the definition of what it means to, so to incorporate different forms of people within the category of what we call whiteness. So Italian-Americans uh, were not considered to be white for a long period of time. They had to be integrated into the system <clears throat> to be considered white. Um, and other, um, other groups of people who came from even parts of Europe that were not not considered parts, uh, not considered to be white, had to be integrated uh, to, to be included. And so the whole idea of what race is, is, is a fiction in the first place. We know that anthrop anthropologically, but we also know that race has a meaning because it, it is, it's woven into the fabric of who we are as a nation. So for example, when you talk about uh, Mississippi and, and, and people being inter, interrelated, yes, there's a lot of that happening, but we, our governments, our society created a system to, to determine who was black and who was not. Black people didn't do that. When Homer Plessy, who we know from the famous Plessy versus Ferguson case, who was a visibly indescribable person from what I've understood, what I read, what I've read about him, when he was on a train in New Orleans uh, and he was pulled off the train for being in the whites only car, even though he was black, he only had one eighth of his blood was black, quote unquote. Uh, I think it was a black great grandmother or something like that. Um, and the train conductor didn't know that he was black until he identified himself as such. But our, but our society at that time designated anyone who had at least one eighth of, of, of a drop of blood uh, in their body that was black made them black. So this is a construction of, would you say the dominant race or the dominant class in America? Well, the two are inextricably connected in America. I mean, because we do have economic disparities. And this is an important point, too, because of the question about class privilege. And yes, uh, we do have a, a wealthy class of people in this country that are not exclusively white, but they serve the interest of white people. And yes, there are some black people, Oprah Winfrey's and of the world, or even the Beyonce of the world, or who who may have be a, be a part of that economic stratosphere, but they're not a part of the overall cast of 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 acceptable people. Even if Oprah Winfrey 
or Barack Obama or anyone else who's very- Or yourself. I mean, you went to Harvard Law. You're a prominent writer, broadcaster. But I'm not a billionaire. <laughs> not a billionaire, but yeah. you're still uh, comfortably off upper middle class. But, but even if someone- I mean, I, I'm not, I, I can't make any judgments, Keith, on your economic- uh, No, I, I understand. Your bank account, but you seem to be doing all right. Well, yeah, thank you. I, 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 but my point though is that even if someone who is black and successful, uh, they can escape from a certain type of economic oppression in the society, but they can't escape the the racial system in our society. So Oprah, Oprah Winfrey, for example, there's a couple of famous incidents where she's involved with where she was not allowed entry into a, a store, a boutique in Paris, I believe. Uh, because they just saw this black woman outside the store, and they didn't realize it was Oprah Winfrey. You know, and there's all yeah, kinds it's, of it's, it's embarrassing. So let me just pick you up on something. You talked about uh, powerful blacks like Oprah Winfrey serving the interests. I'm not sure if you said the dominant class or the white class. What, what do you mean by that? Well, I'm not sure if I said or if I mean. You said to serve the interest. I'm not sure of the dominant class. Yeah, I, th I think I think what I was saying is that even they they represent the interest of the dominant class in, in the sense that I don't want to say serve if I said that I misspoke. Okay, um, so they represent the interest. Well, and by, and by that I mean just that. Um, take someone like Bob Johnson, for example. He's a billionaire. He's the founder mm -hmm. of Black Entertainment TV, right, and he just gave a, a huge donation to a, a women's college. Fulfillment. Yeah. Um, so Bob Johnson, um, founded BET, um, very much, um, involved in the black community. Uh, but at the same time, Bob Johnson, you know, is the billionaire. He wants his taxes to be cut. You know, he, 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 he said that in the past that the, the, one of the things he appreciated about Republican policies and Donald Trump in particular, I think at that time was that he wanted his taxes to be cut. So it, it you know, you even even if you are a black person who is very successful and affected by racism, that doesn't mean you don't still have the interest of black of black people who are in that upper economic stratosphere. The point I was making with the, with all these examples, though, is just to examine the way privilege works. Privilege is a is a relative thing. Each person, every person has privilege. I have privilege. You have privilege. But because privilege is relative to somebody else. Most Americans have some sort of privilege over other people because we live in a very privileged society. Even we, even though we have a lot of people in our in our country who are very underprivileged, relatively speaking, to the, the way that maybe you and I live or other people live, uh, and so we have to understand that 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 how that works anyway. The differentiation in privilege, but for a lot of white people, particularly poor white people, the tendency is to think, oh, I don't have privilege because I'm poor. I don't have any money. There's Oprah Winfrey's got money. Barack Obama's the president. But as I was saying, and I'm trying to get back to that point from the beginning, is that even those wealthy, successful black people still suffer from racism. They can't escape the racism. You can't buy yourself. You can't buy your way out of racism. You can buy your way out of the economic disparities, but you can't buy your way out of racism in this country. Keith, a couple of years ago, you were on the show. It's the first time you came on. You had a new book out called um, Race Against Time, The Politics of a Darkening in America. It was a cautiously optimistic conversation, at least if you want to believe in the end of 
white majority in America and a, a genuinely multiracial, multicultural democracy. And yet the subtitle of this new book is uh, 25 Arguments That Won't Go Away. Why won't they go away? Hmm. Well, it's hard to make someone see the truth when they're invested in denying it. And part of the reality is that there's a, a core group of people in our society who are invested in denying the truth. So I've categorized the, the story. The, the, the book is 25 arguments, and they're really 25 stories um, that I tell. Um, not only my stories, but stories of other people and Black Americans and other people. Um, and each of those stories illustrates a point within five general categories. This is the first time. This is only my, the book just came out today, and I wrote it a year ago. So forgive me if I if I can't remember some things here here and there. But yeah, we've got the the and I'll help you here. The erasure of right. black history, the insistence on white victimhood, the denial of black oppression, the promotion of myths about black inferiority and the masking of racist rhetoric. Those are the five themes. Right, exactly. Well, the, the last one I called rebranding racism in, in, in the book, but but th those are the those are the five ways in which these these sort of issues come up, these arguments that won't go away, and we're seeing that today. Uh, the reason why they won't go away is because they serve the interest of, of white supremacy and white privilege. Uh, why would someone stop saying these things or stop believing these things if they continue to perpetuate your sense of, of being better than another group of people? Uh, for example, this notion that black people are, are all on welfare. They're, the truth is there are more white people on welfare than black people. But that's an obvious point to anybody who knows anything about the demographics of our country. We have 330 million people. Black people are only 13% of the population. Of course, the majority of people on welfare are white, but people don't even bother to do that basic level of investigation to figure that out. Or they say, well, why why won't black people do anything about black on black crime? Well, the truth is black people have been talking about crime in our communities for decades, but white America hasn't been paying attention. And then secondly, when we do talk about it, um, people ignore what we say and they, they tend to, to pathologize uh, the community for, for the crime that does take place. Whereas no one ever says when two white people are engaged in the criminal be criminal behavior, a white person kills a white person, they ever say, oh, that's white on white crime. But when black people do something, it becomes black on black crime. Most crime in America is intra-racial, not interracial. The uh, The vast majority of people who were, who were murdered or robbed or raped or victims of violent crime are victims of people who they know or people in their community or people of their own race. That's something we don't talk about. Um, and then the, the you know the the, the myth that, that black people are just lazy that we won't don't work and all these different myths out there that help to perpetuate a sense of why we have these economic imbalances. If if you look at a world in which black people have been traditionally and remain currently as second class citizens, how else to explain that except for one of two things? Either one, there's something wrong with those black people. That's the reason why they're in this condition because they won't take care of themselves and their cities and their and their families and all these other things. Or two, there are some structural issues in our society that have created this imbalance over the course of hundreds of years. So which question, which is it going to be? Is it do you believe that black people are inherently inferior, or do you believe there are some structural issues that we need to be interrogating and to breaking down those those barriers? We're speaking with my old friend Keith Boykin.
Third time on the show. Third time lucky, Keith, although the first two were good as well. New book out today. Why does everything have to be about race? With a question mark. Um, I want to thank uh, our generous sponsors, Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics, who help us get such high-quality, articulate, controversial guests as Keith Boykin. Um, going to run a short ad for Liberties, and then we'll be back in a second to talk more about race in America, one issue that never will seem to go away. So we'll be back in a second. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can subscribe to Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. We're speaking with Keith Boykin, the Los Angeles-based author, broadcaster, uh, polemicist, new book out, very interesting book, lovely title. Why does everything have to be about race? Often we've all asked ourselves that one way or the other, perhaps rhetorically, perhaps uh, literally, uh, Keith, you've been outspoken on uh, some of the the more recent uh, controversies. Uh, you're very outspoken on the Claudine Gay situation at Harvard. What's your take on that and mm. the whole issue of affirmative action? Can you imagine a time when America doesn't need affirmative action? Hmm. Um. Those are two good questions and um, a, a bit different questions. Let me let me tackle. They're the, connected in a way. They are very connected, and, and at least in the per public perception. Um, let me just first mention the Claudine Gay story because um, I think what happened in that case was that people characterized her, her critics characterized her as an affirmative action hire in, the, in an attempt to suggest that the only reason why she was hired was because she was a black woman. Um, and they ignored the fact that she had graduated from Phillips Andover Academy, I believe, that she had also uh, gone to Harvard and Stanford, um, gotten a PhD um, and um, become the Dean of Faculty, the PhD from at Harvard, by the way, the Dean of Faculty at Harvard, um, and had, had a very accomplished career um, before she was selected as the president of the university. Um, and a lot of the people who were making the criticism of her were people who weren't nearly as distinguished. Uh, and, and, you know, it, it's interesting too, because the critique that, that, that it eventually brought her down was the issue of plagiarism. And I'm, I'm a little troubled by that because I remember reading a piece about this in the Harvard Crimson, the, the student journal, the daily newspaper there, and it indicated that there were some issues where there was improper citations and things like that. I don't want to get into all the details about it, but but the point of it was that even her thesis advisor, the people who, who advised her in the doctoral dissertation, didn't believe that it, it, it constituted plagiarism. Um, and he was one of the people who she was alleged to have plagiarized from. And he was denying the whole thing. So I think it's important to have put all these things in the context that there was an orchestrated campaign against her to try to drive her out. Was it a... a some people have suggested it was a, a racist campaign on the part of people like 
Bill Ackman who became very public. Uh, from the very moment she was hired, long before the controversy about her testimony in Capitol Hill, there was a there was a campaign to drive her out. And they've acknowledged that there have been newspaper articles that have explained that, that that was part of their campaign, and they're coming for other academics as well next. So that that's the issue. Some people would say, Keith, well, a, a white woman got thrown out of uh, uh, Pennsylvania, University of Pennsylvania. So what's the difference? Uh, at what point can we deal with a complicated situation like Claudine Gay and be colorblind? Is that possible? Well, because it because they they are related. I mean, the reason why I mean, it's it's almost like when people say, um, you know, Donald Trump has black friends, so he can't be racist or or things like that. Um, just because the the color of the other other president, University of Pennsylvania, her her race was not black, doesn't mean that the issue isn't about race. Ultimately, what, the point of the anti DEI campaign is to attack anything anything that helps to perpetuate this idea that diversity and inclusion should be celebrated in our in our academic institutions and that means that anyone who perpetuates that too who pr promotes those ideas so if you are a white person a white president or a black president or uh, a person who's a person of a different race who supports these ideas you are a contributor to that problem um you you, you might even say that you know you are uh, what was the old term they used to say when, you, when people are race traitors you know so even though you're even though that person may be uncle Tom's. Well, no, I'm talking about white people. Uh, white, yeah. white people who who support the interest of black people, they would call race traitors. And so, I think um, even in even in this context, even if the even if other people who are targeted are white, it doesn't mean that this subject isn't about. It's not. It's, it's still about DEI, and DEI in the minds of many people is about is about blackness. Similarly, with affirmative action, it's about blackness, even though. White women have been the big, biggest beneficiaries of affirmative action. The perception is that, is that it is about blackness, and so anything they can do to undermine DEI, undermine affirmative action, they will do. There was an air, airplane incident a few days ago, and there were conservatives who were uh, online and in public saying that the airplane incidents were happening because of of DEI. There was a train derailment that took place a year or two ago. People were. Uh, yeah, I heard about the rail. So, so coming back to this idea of a race traitor, you've tweeted quite a lot about Tim Scott, oh, who you believe seems, and, and a lot of people seem to think that he's trying to become Trump's uh, oh, yeah. running mate. Is he a race traitor? Well, I don't really like that term, race traitor. I think I think the term that comes in. Well, you you introduced him. Well, yeah, but I, what I was introducing in terms of that's what people say about white people who support black interest. Uh, so they would say Joe Biden is a race traitor, for example. Um, so I, I, I wouldn't just I don't really use that term race traitor. It's also like the term race hustler. I don't like that term either mm. um, because I, they, people always accuse me on Twitter of being a race hustler because I talk about race issues and I post uh, stories about racial discrimination and bias. Um, but the reality is, you know, going back to your statement about uh, economic conditions, if I were to decide today that I don't want to support black people anymore, I don't want to support people of color, I'm going to become Tim Scott. I'm going to say that 
I don't believe we need affirmative action. I don't believe we need race. We, we, we need to talk about race anymore. America is not a racist country. And Donald Trump is, is the solution. I'm going to tell you, Andrew, things are going to change for me dramatically overnight uh, because of that. I mean, the real hustle, if you will, is for those people who are black or people of color who are denying racism. That that would improve. I, I wouldn't be talking to you from an apartment in, in Los Angeles. I'd be talking to you from my mansion in Beverly Hills if I if I made that transition. But that's not a transition that I've chosen to, to make because that's not what I believe. So in, in terms of Tim Scott, I don't know what his beliefs are, but I can't imagine he could possibly believe that America is not a racist country. I can't imagine he could possibly believe that Donald Trump, um, who has a long history of racism, uh, is not a problematic uh, candidate. I can't imagine he could possibly support Donald Trump after, even after Donald Trump tweeted a obviously racist post of a white person chanting white power. Tim Scott was asked about that by Jake Tapper on CNN, and Tim Scott couldn't bring himself to say he was offended by it. Even, if, even though Jake Tapper said, it offends me and I'm white. <laughs> but do you think, Keith, that you, you know this world? I mean, are, are people sick of it? I, I mean, we'll, we'll talk about Trump, of course. He's hard to not talk about. But you recently uh, tweeted about how bored people are with DeSantis. He's dropped out after spending many millions of dollars obsessed with woke politics and all these issues. Do you think that there are some Americans, at least, even Republicans, who are just sick of all this? Sick of what? Sick of these issues about race and blaming everything on people of different skins. Different oh, yeah. I, skins. I think, yeah, I think, to be honest, my perception is that most white Americans are probably sick of hearing about race. Um, they don't want to talk about this. I mean, and most Black Americans, to be honest, are sick of dealing with this and having to talk about this either. Uh, so why are we still talking about it? It's because we're st we still have we haven't done anything to deconstruct the system that perpetuates these problems. Um, we passed a few laws: the Civil Rights Act of '64, the Voting Rights Act of '65, the Fair Housing Act of 1968, and we thought everything was supposed to be okay after that. But we didn't deal with dismantling the structures that created the problems in the first place. That's the reason why affirmative action existed. That's the reason why it was valuable until the Supreme Court struck it down, at least in college admissions. That's the reason why we created DEI. We're, we're developing into a, a multiracial, pluralistic, inclusive society. And the question is, are we going to embrace that or are we going to fight against that? And there are a lot of people who want to fight against that, who don't want to talk about all these changes, who want to just sort of accept the way things were before. And um, I'm I'm not at all surprised that people don't want to have, have these conversations. But that means we should be having them. You know, in South Africa, when when Nelson Mandela became president, and the ANC took over. Uh, they created a reconciliation commission to go back and look at the history, to look at how they got there. Uh, and have a truth in reconciliation commission, I should say, and to, to tell the truth of what happened in the past. Here, we're doing the exact opposite. We're denying the truth. We're 160 years from the Civil War, and people are still denying what took place in the Civil War. 
people are denying that slavery and segregation ever had an impact on people. Some people are actually saying, I quote, I think it was Bill O'Reilly who said that, well, you know, the slaves were well fed and taken care, well taken care of. Oh my gosh, it's, it's, we're still having these conversations in the 21st century. Yeah, I, w I went to the, I don't know if you've been to the, have you been to the Civil Rights Museum in uh, Jackson, Mississippi? I have not. It's, it's well worth a visit. I mean, there are a lot of good museums on this stuff now. So what, so what needs to happen, Keith, so that these arguments will finally go away? Do we need reparations? Do we need re-education? Do we need a, a general amnesia? Do we need to go back to the failure of reconstruction? What has to happen? Well, um, you know, it's interesting you asked that question because the previous book, that I think one of the previous books I was on here to talk about um, Race Against Time, I offer solutions for what needs to happen in that book. This book doesn't really offer solutions. It just sort of responds to the the 25 arguments. Have you given up on it? You know, it's not that I've given up on it. It's just that I, maybe I'm being too literal in answering your question because you said what needs to happen to make these arguments go away. I don't think that these arguments are going to go away. Do we want them? Okay, let me rephrase it. Should we want these arguments to go away? I want them to go away because I think they do a disservice to the real discussions we need to be having. Um, I don't know that everyone else wants them to, but I think we should want them to go away because I think that when, once we get past this basic level of discussion and start to have a deeper conversation about what kind of society we want to build uh, and where, where we're going to be in the 21st century, then I think we will, uh, we will, have, we will have, our, have some solutions to that. But the reason why I'm reluctant to say that the arguments will go away is because I think that racism is foundational to who we are as a country. Uh, mm. I don't think that's going to disappear. There will always be racist people in America. Um, I can't imagine how that's ever going to change. The question is, whether we will have the systems to support those people. And we were moving in a certain direction, I think, for some decades after the civil rights era to try to eradicate that, to move, to eliminate those systems, to create affirmative action and set-aside programs and DEI programs. And then we've been moving backwards in the past decade or so. There has been a pendulum swing. Uh, and I think this is part of the history of America too. Whenever there is a period of progress, there is a period of retrenchment. We saw that after the Civil War, when we had the Reconstruction era from 1865 to 1877, which is followed by this period of terror against Black people of the, the, the Ku Klux Klan and, and the extrajudicial lynchings that were taking place and the, the, the segregation of, of, of Black people and Jim Crow. All that happened as a backlash to the fact that Black people started to have a modicum of equality in America. So are we in danger of that kind of backlash? And um, some people might think of Reconstruction as the civil rights movement of the 60s, the last 30 or 40 years with Trump. It's odd that Trump seems to be increasing his votes uh, by blacks and Hispanics, although they're still pretty small. How, how does Trump fit into this? Is he just another racist politician or is he something different? He's definitely something different. Um, we've never seen anything like Donald Trump before. And the sad thing, I, I don't know if I've ever, we've ever had this discussion before, but the sad thing about Donald Trump, from my perception, I covered him for five years, as I mentioned before, you know, working for CNN. And the sad thing about Trump is that I don't know that he really believes in anything. 
other than himself. Mm. And so a lot of the people who are, you know, he used to be a Democrat, then he was an independent, then he became a Republican. Um, he used to support abortion rights for women, then he, he was opposed to them. Uh, Donald Trump is an opportunist, but he's an opportunist who has found that the current opportunity for him is appealing to racists. And that, you know, at, at his age, that may be the last opportun opportunity that he chooses to, to latch on to. Um, and I think it is a danger because um, he has given license to other people who are uh, truly committed to, to the racism that he is helping to enable. Uh, and I think that electing him again as president will have dire consequences for our country. Um, I don't think that the first term of the Trump administration will even compare, it will pale in comparison to what we could possibly see in a second Trump presidency uh, for a man who has been indicted four times, has 91 charges against him and two impeachments. Uh, the idea that he would even be a serious candidate is itself a question about race, because even though you mentioned that there is a small group of black people and black men in particular who might be interested in him as a candidate, there've always been black people, Tim Scott, Clarence Thomas, others, even going back to slavery and segregation, black people who supported white white supremacy. But the the problem with with where we are today is that the majority of white people support Donald Trump, at least at the at the the polling booth, polling booth. The majority of white people voted for Donald Trump in 2016. The majority of white people voted for Donald Trump in 2020. And the majority of white people did not vote for, for Barack Obama in 2008 or 2012. So there's this weird sense that somehow we're supposed to be in this post-racial society, but when given the opportunity to vote for the first black candidate for president, who, who was a remarkable person by all accounts anyway, most white people didn't vote for him. But then given the opportunity to vote for Donald Trump, a huckster two-bit salesman who's a former reality TV show, game show host, uh, who, who at that time had six bankruptcies and, and a, a history of failure and racism, and they voted for him. I mean, what can you say? Yeah, what can you? Well, you, you've never had a problem with that, Keith. You, you've always got something to say, right? <laughs> There are times when I have nothing else to say. Yeah, I mean, the weird thing about Trump and his followers is if Trump was on the show, he'd swear, oh, I don't have a racist bone in my body. As a lot of his followers would say, I think, I mean, apart from obviously the neo-Nazis, and I think they'd actually believe it. So how do we, I mean, final question, how, how do we get Maybe Trump himself is another subject. We're not going to convince him of anything. But how can we convince many of the white followers, or you convince, I have nothing to do with me, uh, that their support for Trump and his policies, even if in their heads they're not racist, it actually is racist? Um, yeah, I don't know that we can with everyone for most of them, in part because, you know, I, I've, I've often said this before about different categories of people. Um, there's a group of people who I think who are open to open to persuasion, um, who are reasonable, my, open minded people 
who maybe they've heard something from one side or another side, and they they don't really they're not really that into politics, or even if they are, they don't really think deeply about these issues. But they're but they but they use their brains. Then there's a group of people who get it from the beginning, who are gonna who support the cause no matter what. They they are they are true blue believers. Then there's a third group of people who are completely invested in denying racism, completely invested in denying that they have anything to do with it or, in, or benefit from the history of it, um, and will go to their graves thinking that. That third group of people, I don't think are reachable. I, I think that, you know, the, I don't think it's possible to have a society where everybody has the same ideas, first of all, but I really don't think you're gonna be able to eliminate racism or all people who hold racist beliefs. But I think you, what we can do is to marginalize those groups of people by A, using the, the core group of, 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 of believers and combining them with the people who are persuadable. Those are the people who I'm really most focused on. My book is not trying to reach the Trump supporters. It's not trying to persuade them. You know, I, 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 I start the book to give you an example with a quotation from Toni Morrison. And she says, the function of racism is distraction. She said this in 1975, in a speech in Portland State University. The function of racism is distraction. And so I could spend all day till I'm blue in the face trying to go through 25 more arguments to prove why everything that they've said is wrong from the right-wing conservative racists who support Donald Trump. And it didn't change a single soul. So I'm more interested in focusing on the people who do have open minds, who are um, uh, confused or conflicted, and the people who, do, who actually are true believers who just need some ammunition and support to back up their arguments. Those are the two groups of people I'm focused on.